Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm Tyler, and today we will be continuing on with The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Chapter 34 Yet to Learn The next morning I blearily awoke after two hours of sleep, bundled myself onto one of the wagons, and proceeded to drowse away the morning. It was nearly noon before I realized that we had taken on another passenger at the inn last night. His name was Josen. Or J Jawson. Yeah, his name was Jawson. Okay, it's spelled J-O-S-N, so you can f forgive me a little bit, uh, my pronunciation. Okay, uh, his name was Jawson, and he had paid Roant for passage to Annalyn. He had an easy manner and an honest smile. I did not like him. My reason was simple. He spent the entire day riding next to Denna. He flattered her outrageously and joked with her about becoming one of his wives. She seemed unaffected by the late hours we had kept the night before, looking as bright and fresh as ever. The result was that I spent the day being irritated and jealous while acting unconcerned. Since I was too proud to join their conversation, I was left to myself. I spent the day thinking sullen thoughts, trying to ignore the sound of Josen's voice and occasionally remembering the way Denna had looked last night with the moon reflecting off the water behind her. That night I was planning to ask Denna to go for a walk after everyone turned in for the night, but before I could approach her, Jawson went to one of the wagons and brought back a large black case with brass buckles along the side. The sight of it made my heart turn sideways in my chest. Sensing the group's anticipation, though not mine in particular, Jawson slowly undid the brass clasps and drew out his lute with an air of studied nonchalance. It was a trooper's lute. Its long, graceful neck and round bowl were painfully familiar. Sure of everyone's attention, he cocked his head and strummed, pausing to listen to the sound. Then, nodding to himself, he started to play. He had a fair tenor and reasonably clever fingers, he played a ballad, then a light, quick drinking song, then a slow, sad melody in a language that I didn't recognize but suspected might be illish. Lastly, he played Tinker Tanner, and everyone came in on the chorus. Everyone but me. I sat still as a stone, with my fingers aching. I wanted to play, not listen. Want isn't strong enough a word. I was hungry for it, starved. I'm not proud of the fact that I thought about stealing his loot and leaving in the dark of the night. He finished the song with a flourish, and Roant clapped his hands a couple of times to get everyone's attention. Time for sleep. You sleep too late, Derek broke in, gently teasing. We get left behind, we know, Master Roant. We'll be ready to roll with the light. Jawson laughed and flipped open his loot case with his foot, but before he put it away I called over to him. Could I see that for a second? I tried to keep the desperation out of my voice. Tried to make it sound like idle curiosity. I hated myself for the question. Asking to hold a musician's instrument is roughly similar to asking to kiss a man's wife. Non-musicians don't understand. An instrument is like a companion and a lover. Strangers ask to touch and hold with annoying regularity. I knew better, but I couldn't help myself. Just for a second... 
I saw him stiffen slightly, reluctant, but keeping friendly appearances is a minstrel's business just as much as music. Certainly, he said with a jocularity that I saw as false, but probably convincing for the others. He strode over to me and held it out. Be careful. Josen took a, a couple steps back and gave a very good appearance of being at ease. But I said... But I saw how he stood with his arms slightly bent, ready to rush forward and whisk the loot away from me if the need arose. I turned it over in my hands. Objectively, it was nothing special. My father would have rated it as one short step above firewood. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I touched the wood. I cradled, it. I cradled it against my chest. I spoke without looking up. It's beautiful, I said softly, my voice rough with emotion. It was beautiful. It was the most beautiful thing I had seen in three years. More beautiful than the sight of a spring field after three years of living in that pestilent cesspit of a city. More beautiful than Denna. Almost. Uh, good, good catch there. <laughs> well, no, it says more beautiful than Denna. Almost. So, so he admits that it's at least not quite as beautiful as that. And for him to say that after longing so hard for the loot, that's saying something about Denna. Okay, anyway, sorry. Uh, I can honestly say that I was still not really myself. I was only four days away from living on the streets. I was not the same person I had been back in the days of the troop, but neither was I yet the person you hear about in stories. I had changed because of Tarbine. I had learned many things it would have been easier to live without. But sitting beside the fire, bending over the loot, I felt the hard, unpleasant parts of myself that I had gained in Tarbine crack. Like a clay mole around a now cool piece of iron, they fell away, leaving something clean and hard behind. I sounded the strings one at a time, and when I hit the third it was ever so slightly off and I gave one of the tuning pegs a minute adjustment without thinking. Here now, don't go touching those, Josen tried to ca sound casual. You'll turn it from true, but I didn't really hear him. The singer and all the rest couldn't have been farther away from me if they'd been at the bottom of the Synthi Sea. I touched the last string and tuned it too ever so slightly. I made a simple chord and strummed it. It rang soft and true. I moved a finger, and the chord went minor in a way that always sounded to me as if the lute was, were saying sad. I moved my hands again, and the lute made two chords whispering against each other. Then, without realizing what I was doing, I began to play. The strings felt strange against my fingers, like reunited friends who have forgotten what they have in common. I played soft and slow, sending notes no farther than the circle of our firelight. Fingers and strings made a careful conversation, as if their dance described the lines of an infatuation. Then I felt something inside me break, and music began to pour out into the quiet. My fingers danced. Intricate and quick, they spun something gossamer and tremulous into the circle of light our fire had made. The music moved like a spiderweb stirred by a gentle breath. It changed like a leaf twisting as it falls to the ground and it felt like three years waterside in Tarbine, with a hollowness inside you and hands that ached from the bitter cold. With it. Wow, I got the inflection on that sentence wrong. Okay. 
The music moved like a spiderweb stirred by a gentle breath. It changed, like a leaf twisting as it falls to the ground, and it felt like three years waterside and tarbine, with a hollowness inside you and hands that ached from the bitter cold. Okay, that's, that's right. I don't know how long I played. It could have been ten minutes or an hour, but my hands weren't used to the strain. They slipped, and the music fell to pieces like a dream on waking. I looked to see everyone perfectly motionless, their faces ranging from shock to amazement. Then, as if my gaze had broken some spell, everyone stirred. Rowan shifted in his seat. The two mercenaries turned and raised eyebrows at each other. Derek looked at me as if he had never seen me before. Retta remained frozen, her hand held in front of her mouth. Denna lowered her face into her hands and began to cry in quiet, hopeless sobs. Jocelyn simply stood. His face was stricken and bloodless as if he had been stabbed. I held out the lute, not knowing whether to thank him or apologize. He took it numbly. After a moment, unable to think of anything to say, I left them sitting by the fire and walked toward the wagons. And that is how Kvoth spent his last night before he came to the university, with his cloak and as both his blanket and his bed. As he lay down, behind him was a circle of fire, and before him lay shadow like a mantle gathered. His eyes were open, that much is certain. But who among us can say they know what he was seeing? Look behind him instead to the circle of light that the fire has made, and leave Kvoth to himself for now. Everyone deserves a moment or two alone when they desire it. And if by chance there were tears, let us forgive him. He was just a child, after all, and had yet to learn what sorrow really was. And my laptop has locked me out for some reason. Okay, good, we are still recording. All right. Thirty-five. A parting of ways. The weather held fair, which meant that the wagons rolled into Imre just as... Sorry, Im Imre? Imre? I guess, let's see, I, I looked over this before. Imre. Rolled into Imre just as the sun was setting. My mood was sullen and hurt. Denna had shared a wagon with Jossen the whole of the day, and I, being foolish and proud, had kept my distance. A whirl of activity sprang up as soon as the wagons rolled to a stop. Rowant began to argue with a clean-shaven man in a velvet hat before he had brought his wagon to a full stop. After the initial bout of bargaining, a dozen men began unloading bolts of cloth, barrels of molasses, and burlap sacks of coffee. Retta cast a stern eye over the lot of them. Jawson scuttled around, trying to keep his luggage from being damaged or stolen. My own luggage was easier to manage, as I only had my travel sack. I retrieved it from between some bolts of cloth and moved away from the wagons. I slung it over one shoulder and looked around for Denna. I found Retta instead. You were a great help on the road, she said clearly. Her Aeteran was much better than Rowan's, with hardly any train trace of Siaru accent at all. 
It is nice to have someone along who can unhitch a horse without being led by the hand. She held out a coin to me. I took it without thinking. It was a reflex action, <laughs> reflex action from my years as a beggar. <clears throat> like the reverse of jerking your hand back from a fire, only after the coin was in my hand did I take a closer look at it. It was a whole copper jot, fully half of what I had paid to travel with them to Imre. When I looked back up, Reta was heading back toward the wagons. Not sure what to think, I wandered over to where Derek sat on the edge of a horse trough. He shaded his eyes against the evening sun with one hand as he looked up at me. On your way, then? I almost thought you might stick with us for a while. I shook my head. Retta just gave me a jot. He nodded. I'm not terribly surprised. Most folks are nothing but dead weight, he shrugged. And she appreciated your playing. Have you ever thought of trying out as a minstrel? They say Imre is a good place for it. I steered the conversation back to Reta. I don't want Roan to be angry with her. He seems to take his money pretty seriously. Derek laughed. <laughs> she doesn't? I gave my money to Roan, I clarified. If he'd wanted to give some back of it, I'd think he'd do it himself. Derek nodded. It's not their way. A man doesn't give money away. Well, that's my point, I said. I don't want her to get in trouble. Derek waved his hands back and forth, cutting me off. I'm not doing a good job explaining myself, he said. Roant knows. He might have even sent her over to do it. But grown sealedish men don't give away money. It's seen as womanish behavior. They don't even buy things if they can help it. Didn't you notice that Reto was the one who bargained for our rooms and food at the inn a few nights ago? I did remember now that he mentioned it. But why? I asked. Derek shrugged. There isn't any why. It's just the way they do things. That's why so many sealedish caravans are husband-wife teams. Derek, Rowan's voice came up from behind the wagons. He sighed, and as he stood up, Duty calls, he said. I'll see you around. <clears throat> Sorry, bumped my desk. Crossing my leg here on my chair. <sighs> All right, duty calls, he said. See you around. I tucked the jot into my pocket and thought about what Derek had said. The truth was, my troop had never gone so far north as to make it into the Schald. It was unnerving to think I wasn't as worldwise as I'd thought. Well, I mean, you are 15, kid. Okay. <clears throat> no, no, no 15-year-old is as cool as they think they are. You, if you know any 15-year-olds, or uh, if you are 15, first of all, if you're 15... Well, you're you're probably old enough to be listening to this. Um, you might blush at some points, but uh, you're used to saying things like fuck. So, anyway, if you are older than that and you look back on yourself when you were 15, I'm pretty sure you're going to cringe. I know I do. And that's because no 15-year-old is actually as cool as they think they are. Or so badly off as uh, they think they are socially. Everybody's a fool at 15. <sighs> okay, let's see. Oh, and uh, if you are 15 and you're thinking poorly of yourself, even the popular kids will look back and cringe. Well, I shouldn't say all. Some of them will look back longingly because they will have peaked at 15. 
they'll look back and be like, ah, oh, man, the good old days in high school. And that's because they're adults that other people cringe at. Anyway, okay. Let's see. I slung my travel sack over my shoulder and looked around one last time, thinking that perhaps it would be best if I left without any troublesome goodbyes. Denno was nowhere to be seen. That settled it. I turned to leave and found her standing behind me. She smiled a little awkwardly, with her hands clasped behind her back. She was lovely as a flower, and totally unconscious of it. I was suddenly short of breath, and I forgot myself, my irritation, my hurt. "'You're still going?' she asked. I nodded. "'You could come to Annalyn with us,' she suggested. "'They say the streets are paved with gold there. "'You could teach Jocelyn to play the lute he carries around,' she smiled. "'I've asked him, and he said he wouldn't mind.' I considered it. For half a heartbeat, I almost threw my whole plan aside just to stay with her a little longer. But the moment passed, and I shook my head. "'Don't look like that,' she chided me with a smile. I'll be there for a while if things don't work out for you here, she trailed off, hopefully. I didn't know what I could do if things didn't work out for me here. I was hanging all my hopes on the university. Well, you idiot, you could be a minstrel. Fucking hell. Kvothe. Well, most 15-year-old boys aren't very bright. In the wise, worldly type of wise, uh, bright way, I mean. In in the world-wise bright, or thinking of other possibilities if things go wrong. You set your hopes on one thing, you know, and then if that thing doesn't work out, you tend to feel like you've failed at everything in life. <laughs> it's like, man, you've he doesn't realize how good he is with the loot. Well, he might, but like he could he could be a minstrel for kings easily. Like, uh, like Abanthi said, he could be the next Dillian. Okay, let's see. Uh, besides, Annalyn was hundreds of miles away. I barely owned the clothes on my back. How would I find her? Denna must have seen my thoughts reflected on my face. She smiled playfully. I guess I'll just have to come looking for you then. We rue our travelers. Our lives are composed of meetings and partings with brief acquaintances in between. Because of this, I knew the truth. I felt it heavy and certain in the pit of my stomach. I would never see her again. Before I could say anything, she looked nervously behind her. I had, Betty <clears throat> I had better go. Watch for me. She flashed her impish smile again before turning to go walk away. I will, I called after her. I'll see you where the roads meet. She glanced back and hesitated for a moment, then waved and ran off into the early evening twilight. <sighs> Let's see. Thirty-six. Less Talents. I spent the night sleeping outside the city limits of Imre in a soft bed of heather. The next day I awoke late, washed in a nearby stream, and made my way west to the university. 
As I walked, I watched the horizon for the largest building in the university. From Ben's descriptions, I knew what it would look like. The featureless, gray, and squares block. Uh, wait, did I add, an, I added an extra there? Uh, the, there. Um, featureless, gray, and squares block. Larger than four granaries stacked together. No windows, no decorations, and only one set of great stone doors. Ten times ten thousand books. The Archives I had come to the university for many reasons, but that was at the heart of it. The archives held answers, and I had many, many questions. First and foremost, I wanted to know the truth about the Chandrian and the Amir. I needed to know how much of Scarpy's story was the truth. When the road crossed the Omethi River, there was an old stone bridge. I don't doubt that you know the type. It was one of those ancient mammoth pieces of architecture scattered throughout the world, so old and solidly built that they have become part of the landscape, not a soul wondering who built them or why. This one was particularly impressive, over two hundred feet long and wide enough for two wagons to pass each other. It stretched over the canyon the Omethi had carved into the rock. When I stretched the crest when I stretched when I reached goodness when I reached the crest of the bridge, I saw the archives for the first time in my life, raising like some great grey stone over the trees to the west. The university lay at the heart of a small city, though truthfully I hesitated to call it a city at all. It was nothing like Tarbine with its twisting alleys and garbage smell. It was more of a town with wide roads and clean air. Lawns and gardens were spaced between small houses and shops. But since this town had grown up to serve the peculiar needs of the university, a careful observer w could note small differences in the services the town provided. For instance, there were two glass blowers, three fully stocked apothecaries, two binderies, four booksellers, two brothels, and a truly disproportionate number of taverns. <laughs> One of them had a large wooden sign nailed to its door proclaiming, No Sympathy. I wondered what non-arcane visitors might think of the warning. The university itself consisted of about fifteen buildings that bore little resemblance to each other. Mews had a circular central hub with uh, eight wings radiating in each direction, so it looked like a compass rose. Hollows was simple and square, with stained glass windows showing Tecum in a classic pose, standing barefoot in the mouth of his cave, speaking to a group of students. Mains was the most distinctive building of the lot. It covered nearly an acre and a half, and looked like it had been cobbled together from a number of smaller mismatched buildings. As I approached the archives, its gray windowless surface reminded me of an immense gray stone. It was hard to believe, after all the years of waiting, that I was finally there. I circled around it until I found the entrance, a massive pair of stone doors standing wide open. Over them, chiseled deep into the stone, there were the words, Vorfelan Rinata Mori. I didn't recognize the language. It wasn't Siaru. 
maybe Yilish or Tamek. Yet another question I needed answers for. Through the stone doors was a small antechamber with a more ordinary set of wooden doors inside. I tugged them open and felt dry, cool dry air brush past me. The walls were bare gray stone, lit with the distinctive unwavering reddish light of sympathy lamps. There was a large wooden desk with several large ledger-type books lying open atop it. At the desk sat a young man who looked to be a full-blooded sealed, with, his, uh, with the characteristic ruddy complexion and dark hair and eyes. "'Can I help you?' he asked, his voice thick with the harsh burr a Siaru accent makes. "'I'm here for the archives,' I said stupidly. My stomach was dancing with butterflies. My palms were, uh, were sweaty. He looked me over, obviously wondering at my age. "'Are you a student?' "'Soon,' I said. "'I haven't been through admissions yet.' "'You'll need to do that first, he said seriously. "'I can't let anyone in unless they're in the book.' He gestured at the ledgers on the desk in front of him. The butterflies died. I didn't bother to hide my disappointment. Are you sure I can't look around f just for a couple minutes? I've come an awfully long way. I looked at the two sets of double doors leading out of the room. One labeled tomes, the other stacks. Behind the desk, a smaller door was labeled scrivs only. His expression softened somewhat. I cannot. There would be trouble. He looked me over again. Are you really going through admissions? He, his skepticism was obvious even through his thick accent. I nodded. I just came here first, I said, looking around the empty room, eyeing the closed doors, trying to think of some way to persuade him to let me in. He spoke before I could think of anything. If you're really going, you should hurry. Today is the last day. Sometimes they don't go much longer than noon. My heart beat hard and quick in my chest. I'd assumed they would run all day. Where are they? Hollows, he gestured toward the outer door. Down, then left, short building with color windows. Two big trees out front. He paused. Maple? Is that the word for a tree? I nodded, hurried outside, and started pelting down the road. Two hours later, I was in hollows, fighting down a sour stomach and climbing up onto the stage of an empty theater. The room was dark, except for the wide circle of light that held the master's table. I walked to stand at the edge of the light and waited. Slowly, the nine masters stopped talking amongst themselves and turned to look at me. They sat in a huge crescent... Oh, sorry... They sat at a huge crescent-shaped table. It was raised, so even seated, they were looking down on me. They were serious-looking men, ranging in age from mature to ancient. There was a long moment of silence before, I met, before the man sitting at the center of the crescent motioned me forward. I guessed that he was the Chancellor. Come up where we can see you. That's right. Hello. Now, what's your name, boy? Gvoth, sir. And why are you here? I looked him in the eye. I want to attend the university. I want to be an arcanist. I looked around at each of them. Some seemed amused. None looked particularly surprised. 
You are aware, the Chancellor said, that the university is for continuing one's education, not beginning it? Yes, Chancellor, I know. Very well, he said. May I have your letter of introduction? I didn't hesitate. I'm afraid I don't have one, sir. Is it absolutely necessary? It is customary to have a sponsor, he explained, preferably an arcanist. The letter tells us what you know, your areas of excellence and weakness. The arcanist I learned from was named Abenthe, sir, but he never gave me a letter of introduction. Might I tell you myself? The Chancellor nodded gravely. Unfortunately, we have no way of knowing that you actually have studied with an arcanist without proof of some kind. Do you have anything that can corroborate your story? Any other correspondence? He gave me a book before we parted ways, sir. He inscribed it to me and signed with his name. The Chancellor smiled. That should do nicely. Do you have it with you? No. I let some honest bitterness creep into my voice. I had to pawn it in Tarbine. Sitting to the left of the Chancellor, uh, Master Rhetorician Hem made a disgusted noise at my comment. Come, Herma, Hem said, slapping his hands on the table. This boy is obviously lying. I have important matters to attend to this afternoon. The Chancellor um, gave him a vastly irritated look. I have not given you leave to speak, Master Hem. The two of them stared at each other for a long moment before Hem looked away, scowling. The Chancellor turned back to me, then his eye caught some movement from one of the other masters. Yes, Master Loren? The tall, thin master looked at me passively. What was the book called? Rhetoric and Logic, sir. <clears throat> Sorry, Rhetoric and Logic, sir. And where did you pawn it? The Broken Binding on Seaward Square. Lauren turned to look at the Chancellor. I will be leaving for Tarbine tomorrow to fetch necessary materials for the upcoming term. If it is there, I will bring it back. The matter of the boy's claim can be settled then. The Chancellor gave a small nod. Thank you, Master Lauren. He saddled himself back into his chair and folded his hands in front of himself. Very well, then. What would Abenthe's letter tell us if he had written it? I took a good breath. He would say that I knew by heart the first ninety sympathetic bindings, that I could double distill, perform titration, calcify, sublimate, and precipitate solution, that I am well versed in history, argument, grammars, medicine, and geometry. That's quite a list. Oh, sorry, the Chancellor did his best not to look amused. That's quite a list. Are you sure you didn't leave anything out? I paused. He probably would have also mentioned my age, sir. How old are you, boy? Gvoth, sir. A smile tugged at the Chancellor's face. Gvoth. Fifteen, sir. <laughs> there was a rustle as the masters each took some small action, exchanged glances, raised eyebrows, shook their heads. Hem rolled his eyes skyward. Only the Chancellor did nothing. How exactly would he have mentioned your age? I gave a thin sliver of a smile. He would have urged you to ignore it. There was a breath of silence. The Chancellor drew a deep breath 
and leaned back in his seat. Very well. We have a few questions for you. Would you like to begin, Master Brandur? He made a gesture toward one end of the crescent table. I turned to face Brandur. Portly and balding, he was the university's master arithmetician. How many grains are in thirteen ounces? Six thousand two hundred and forty, I said immediately. He raised his eyebrows a little. If I had fifty silver talents and converted them to vintage coin and back, how much would I have if the sealdom took four per cent each time? I started the ponderous conversation uh, between currencies, then smiled as I realized it was unnecessary. Forty-six talents and eight drabs if he's honest, forty-six even if he's not. He nodded again, looking more close, looking at me more closely. You have a triangle, he said slowly. One side is seven feet, another side three feet. One angle is sixty degrees. How long is the other side? Is the angle between the two sides? He nodded. I closed my eyes for the space of half a breath, then opened them again. Six feet and an inch. I hesitated a bit. Well, almost an inch. He made a humph noise and looked surprised. Good enough. Master Arwell? Arwell asked his question before I had time to turn and face him. What are the medical properties of hellebore? Anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, mild sedative, mild analgesic, blood purifier, I said, looking up at the grandfatherly spectacled old man. Toxic if used excessively, dangerous for women who are with child. Name the component structures that comprise a, comprise the hand. I named all twenty-seven bones alphabetically, then the muscles from largest to smallest. I listed them quickly, matter-of-factly, pointing out their locations on my own upraised hand. The speed and accuracy of my answers impressed them. Some of them hid it, others wore it openly on their faces. The truth was I needed to impress them. I knew from my previous discussions with Ben that you need money or brains to get into the university. The more of one you had, the less of the other you needed. So I was cheating. I had snuck into hollows through a back entrance, acting the part of an errand boy. Then I'd picked two locks and spent more than an hour watching other students' interviews. I heard hundreds of questions and thousands of answers. I also heard how high the other tu students' tuitions were set. The lowest had been four talents and six jots, but most were double that. One student had, had been charged over thirty talents for his tuition. It would be easier for me to get a piece of the moon than that much money. I had two copper jots in my pocket, and no way to get a bent penny more so I needed to impress them. More than that, I needed to confound them with my intelligence. To dazzle them. I finished list, uh, listing the muscles of the hand, and started in on the ligatures when Arwell waved me into silence and asked his next question. When do you bleed a patient? The question brought me up short. When I want him to die? <laughs> I asked dubiously. He nodded, mostly to himself. Master Loren? Master Loren was pale and seeming, seemed unnaturally tall, even while sitting. Who was the first declared king of Tarvintus? Posthumously, Freda Calenthes. 
Freda? No, not Freda. Feda. Feda Calanthus. Otherwise, it would be his brother, Jarvis. Why did the Aetheran Empire collapse? I paused, taken aback by the scope of the question. None of the other students had been asked anything so broad as this. Well, sir, I said slowly, to give myself a moment or two to organize my thoughts. Partly because Lord Nalto was an inept egomaniac, partly because the church went into upheaval and denounced the order Amir, who were a large part of the strength of Ator, partly because the military was fighting three different wars of conquest at the same time, and high taxes fomented rebellion in lands already inside the empire. I watched the master's expression, hoping he would give some sign when he had had enough, or had had when he had heard enough. Sorry, uh, they also debased their currency. Oh, hey, that's something we've done. Um, I live in in the United States. Uh, undercut the universality of the Iron Law and antagonized the Adem. I shrugged, but of course, it's more complicated than that. Master Lauren's expression remained unchanged, but he nodded. Who was the greatest man who ever lived? An unfamiliar question. Oh, sorry, another unfamiliar question. I thought for a minute. Ilian. Master Lauren blinked once, expressionless. Master Mandrag. Mandrag was clean-shaven and smooth-faced with his hands stained a half hundred different colors and seemed to be made all of knuckle and bone. If you needed phosphorus, where would you get it? His tone sounded, for a moment, so much like Abanthes that I forgot myself and spoke without thinking. An apothecary? One of the masters on the other side of the table chuckled, and I bit my too quick tongue. He gave a faint smile, and I drew a faint breath. Barring access to an apothecary. I could render it from urine, I said quickly, given a kiln and enough time. How much would you need to gain two ounces pure? He cracked his knuckles absent-mindedly. I paused to consider. As this was a new question, too. At least forty gallons, Master Mandrag, depending on the quality of the material. There was a long pause as he cracked his knuckles one at a time. What are the three most important rules of the chemist? This I knew from Ben. Label clearly, measure twice, eat elsewhere. He nodded, still wearing the faint smile. Master Kilvin? Kilvin was sealedish, his thick shoulders and bristling back. Ah, uh, sorry. Goodness, let me start that over. Kilvin was sealedish. His thick shoulders and bristling black beard reminded me of a bear. Right, he grumbled, folding his thick hands in front of him. How would you make an ever-burning lamp? Each of the other eight masters made some sort of exasperated noise or gesture. What? Kilvin demanded, looking around at them, irritated. It is my, it is my question. The asking is mine. <laughs> he turned his attention back to me. So... How would you make it? Well, I said slowly, I would probably start with a pendulum of some sort, then I would bind it to Cram. No, not like this. Kilvin 
growled out a couple of words and pounded his fist on the table. Each thump as his hand came down was accompanied by a staccato burst of reddish light that welled up from his hand. No sympathy. I do not want an ever-glowing lamp. I want an ever-burning one. He looked up at me again. He looked at me again, showing his teeth as if he were going to eat me. Lithium salt? I added. I asked without thinking, then backpedaled. No, a uh, sodium oil that burned in an enclosed. No, a uh, dam. I mumbled my way to a stop. The other applicants uh, hadn't had to deal with questions like these. He cut me off with a. Well, yeah, of course he, they didn't have to. They didn't have to prove their brilliance. Uh, he cut me off with a short sideways gesture of his hand. Enough. We will talk later. Elksadal. He took me a moment to remember that Elksadal was the next master. Um, I turned to him. He. Let's see. Sorry. I glanced down later at the page. I need to stop doing that. Uh, it took me a moment to remember that Elxadal was the next master. I turned to him. He looked like the archetypal sinister magician that seems to be a requirement in so many bad Aetherin plays. Severe dark eyes, lean face, short black beard. For all that, his expression was friendly enough. What are the words for the first parallel kinetic binding? I rattled, I rattled them off glibly. He didn't seem surprised. What was the binding that Master Kilvin used just a moment ago? Capacitorial kinetic luminosity. What is the synodic period? Sorry, what is what is the synodic period? I looked at him oddly. Of the moon? The question seemed a little out of sync with the other two. He nodded. Seventy-two and a third days, sir. Give or take a bit. He shrugged and gave me a wry smile, as if he'd expected to catch me with the last question. Master Hem. Hem looked at me over... That's Hem, H-E-M-M-E. Hem looked at me over steepled fingers. How much mercury would it take to reduce two gills of white sulfur? He asked pompously, as if I'd already given the wrong answer. One of the things I'd learned during my hour of quiet observation was this. Master Hem was the king-high bastard of the lot. He took delight in students' discomfort and did everything he could to badger and unsettle them. He had a fondness for trick questions. Luckily, this was one I had watched him use on other students. You see, you can't reduce white sulfur with mercury. Well, I drew the word out, pretending to think it through. Hem's smug smile grew wider by the second. Assuming you mean red sulfur, it would be about 41 ounces, sir. I smiled a sharp smile at him, all teeth. Name the nine prime fallacies. Simplification, generalization, circularity, reduction, analogy, false causality, uh, semantism, irrelevancy, I paused, not being able to remember the formal name of the last one. Ben and I had called it Nalt, after em Emperor Nalto. It galled me, not being able to recall its real name, as I had read it in Rhetoric and Logic just a few days ago. My irritation must have shown on my face. Hem glowered at me uh, as I paused, 
saying, So you don't know everything after all? He leaned back into his seat with a satisfied expression. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think I had anything to learn, I said bitingly before I managed to get my tongue under control again. From the other side of the table, Kilvin gave a deep chuckle. Hem opened his mouth, but the Chancellor silenced him with a look before he could say anything else. Now then, the Chancellor began. I think I, too, would ask some questions, the man to the Chancellor's right said. He had an accent that I couldn't quite place, or perhaps it was that his voice held a certain resonance. When he spoke, everyone at the desk stirred slightly, then grew still, like leaves touched by the wind. Master Namer, the Chancellor said with equal parts deference and trepidation. Elodin was younger than the others by at least a dozen years, clean-shaven with deep eyes, medium height, medium build. There was nothing particularly striking about him, except for the way he sat at the table. One moment watching something intently, the next minute bored and letting his attention wander among the high beams of the ceiling above. He was almost like a child who had been forced to sit down with the with adults. I felt Master Elodin looking at me. Actually felt it. I suppressed a shiver. So heketh kasiaru crema... Sorry, crema teth too, he asked. How well do you speak siaru? Rios ta krelar de too. Not very well, thank you. He lifted a hand, his index finger pointing upward. How many fingers am I holding up? I paused for a moment, which was more consideration than the question seemed to warrant. At least one, I said. Probably no more than six. He broke into a broad smile and brought his other hand up from underneath the table. It had two fingers upright. He waved them back and forth for the other masters to see, nodding his head from side to side in an absent, childish way. Then he lowered his hands to the table in front of him and grew suddenly serious. Do you know the seven words that will make a woman love you? I looked at him, trying to decide if there were if there was more to the question. When nothing more was forthcoming, I answered simply, No. They exist, he reassured me, and sat back with a look of contentment. Master Linguist, he nodded to the Chancellor. That seems to cover most of academia. The Chancellor said almost to himself, I had the impression that something had unsettled him, but he was too composed for me to tell exactly what. You will forgive me if I ask a few things of a less scholarly nature. nature? Having no real choice, I nodded. He gave me a long look that seemed to stretch several minutes. Why didn't Abanthi send a letter of recommendation with you? I hesitated. Not all traveling entertainers are as respectable as our troops, so understandably not everyone respected them. But I doubted that lying was the best course of action. He left my troop three years ago. I haven't seen him since. I saw each of the masters look at me. I could almost hear them doing the mental arithmetic, calculating my age backward. Oh, come now. Hem said disgustedly, and moved as if he would stand. The Chancellor gave him a dark look, silencing him. Why do you wish to attend the university? 
I stood dumbfounded. It was the one question I was completely unprepared for. What could I say? Ten thousand books. Your archives. I, I used to have dreams of reading there when I was young. True, but too childish. I want revenge against the Chandrian. Too dramatic. To become so powerful that no one will ever be able to hurt me again. Too frightening. I looked up to the Chancellor and realized I'd been quiet for a long while. Unable to think of anything else, I shrugged and said, I don't know, sir. I guess I'll have to learn that, too. The Chancellor's eyes had taken on a curious look by this point, but he pushed it aside as he said, Is there anything else you would like to say? He had asked the question of the other applicants, but none of them had taken advantage of it. It seemed almost rhetorical, a ritual before the Masters discussed the applicant's tuition. Yes, please, I said, surprising him. I have a favor to ask beyond mere admission. I took a deep breath, letting their attention settle on me. It has taken me nearly three years to get here. I may seem young, but I belong here as much, if not more, than some rich lordling who can't tell salt from cyanide by tasting it. I paused. However, at this moment I have two jots in my purse, and nowhere in the world to get more than that. I have nothing worth selling that I haven't already sold. Admit, admit me for more than two jots, and I will not be able to attend. Admit me for less, and I will be here every day, while every night I will do what it takes to stay alive while I study here. I will sleep in alleys and stables, wash dishes for kitchen scraps, beg pennies to buy pens. I will do whatever it takes." I said the last words, fiercely, almost snarling them. But admit me free, and give me three talents, so I can live and buy what I need to learn properly, and I will be a student, the likes of which you have never seen before. There was a half-breath of silence, followed by a thunderclap of a laugh from Kilvin. Ha! he roared. If one student in ten had half his fire, I'd teach with a whip and a and chair instead of chalk and slate. He brought his hand down hard on the table in front of him. This sparked everyone to begin talking at the same time in their own varied tones. The Chancellor made a little wave in my direction, and I took the chance to seat myself in the chair that stood at the edge of the circle of light. The discussion seemed to go on for quite a long while, but even two or three minutes would have seemed like an eternity sitting there while a group of old men debated my future. There was no actual shouting, but a fair amount of hand-waving, most of it by Master Hem, who seemed to have taken the same dislike of me that I had for him. It wouldn't have been so bad if I could have understood what they were saying, but even my finely tuned ear eavesdropper's ears couldn't quite make out what was being said. They're talking, you know, that's they probably put the chair exactly as far away as it needed to be so that people couldn't hear. Um, okay, anyway. Their talking died down suddenly, then the Chancellor looked in my direction, motioning me forward. Let it be recorded, he said formally, that Kvoth, son of... He paused, then looked at me inquiringly. Arliden, I supplied. The name sounded strange to me after all these years. Master Lauren turned to look in my direction, blinking once. Son of Arliden is admitted into the university for the continuance of his education on the 43rd of Equus. His admission into the Arcanum 
sorry, his admission into the Arcanum, contingent upon proof that he has mastered the basic prim principles of sympathy, official sponsor being one Kilvin, master artificer. His tuition shall be set at the rate of less three talents. I felt a great dark weight settle inside me. Three talents might as well be all the money in the world for any hope I had in earning it before the term began. Working in kitchens, running errands for pennies, I might be able to save that much in a year if I was lucky. I held a desperate hope that I could cut purse that much in time, but I knew the thought to be just that, desperate. People with that sort of money generally knew better than to leave it hanging in a purse. I didn't realize that the masters had left the table until one of them approached me. I looked up to see the master archivist approached me. Approaching me, sorry. Um, Lauren was taller than I would have guessed, over six and a half feet. His long face and hands made him look almost stretched. When he saw he had my attention, he asked, Did you say your father's name was Arladin? He asked it very calmly, with no hint of regret or apology in his voice. I, it suddenly made me very angry that he should stifle my ambitions of getting into the university, then come over and ask about my dead father as easy as saying good morning. Yes, I said tightly. Arladin the bard? My father always thought of himself as a trooper. He never called himself bard or minstrel. Hearing him referred to in that way irritated me even more, if that were possible. I didn't deign to reply, merely nodded once, sharply. If he thought my response terse, he didn't show it. I was wondering which troop he performed in. My thin restraint burst. Oh, you were wondering, I said with every bit of venom my troop-sharpened tongue could muster. Well, maybe you can wonder a little, uh, a while longer. I'm stuck in ignorance now. I think you can abide a while with a little piece of it yourself. When I come back after earning my three talents, maybe then uh, you can ask me again. I gave him a fierce look, as if hoping to burn him with my eyes. His reaction was minimal, but it wasn't until later, later that I found getting any reaction from Master Lauren was about as likely as seeing a stone pillar wink. <laughs> he looked vaguely puzzled at first, then slightly taken aback. Then, as I glared at him, then as I glared up at him, he gave a faint, thin smile and mutely handed me a piece of paper. I unfolded it, and read it. It read Gvoth. Spring term. Tuition minus three talents. Less three talents, of course. Relief flooded me, as if it were a great wave that swept my legs from beneath me. I sat suddenly on the floor and wept. <sighs> and so our young Kvothe has made it into the university. And at great personal struggle to do so. And he was admitted on a scholarship. We can't all be as bright and intelligent as Kvothe. And even if we work as hard as him, there are some things that are beyond some of us. Beyond all of us. For there are some things beyond Kvothe as well. At least at this point in his life. Still... worked hard 
harder than most people have ever worked. And that's something, that's something admirable, I think. There's a certain strength that you earn. A certain confidence you get. Specifically from working as hard as you are able to work. Not just trying hard for a little while until it becomes tiring, but truly working as hard as you are able, finding your limit, pushing past it again and again to extend yourself. That kind of strength, well, that kind of strength is something special, and the people who have it are head and shoulders above the rest of us. Anyway, something to think about. Of course, as in Kvothe's case, hard work doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be rich. Sometimes it means that you survive. Sometimes that's all you can hope for. In any case, that's all the time we have for tonight. Good night, everyone. Before I leave you, um, do take a minute, uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, to support me on um, currently uh, Buy Me Coffee slash Tyler the DM. Um, however, I am going to be starting a Patreon soon, and uh, for Patreon subscribers, I'm thinking of reading a second book uh, along at the same time as I'm reading this one, so I would do a uh, Patreon subscriber um, exclusive content, basically. Uh, for other books, I would you know, take requests and uh, maybe read a little more at once. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, if you are enjoying the podcast, consider um, consider buying me a coffee. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.